Well, it's a pretty rare event here to have a room full of men. Usually we're a small minority. So this feels great. Um, first, I'd just like to welcome all of you. My name is Joseph Goldstein, and on my right is Philip Moffat, who is on the teaching council at Spirit Rock, teachers there and elsewhere. And he also writes the wisdom column for Yoga Journal each month. So you might have come across that column. And on my left is Pat Coffey, who teaches uh, mostly in the Washington, D.C. area with Tara Brock. Uh, he's also on the board of directors here at IMS. Um, he's an inventor. And uh, he's... Uh, the family man among us. That's the the teaching crew. Coming together for retreat, and it was always a special time. Because especially in these times, in this rather troubled and sometimes seemingly crazy world, we come to, together and create, we create a place of refuge. It's a place of refuge where we practice or undertake the highest values of awakening, you know, of compassionate action. really of understanding freedom and what that could mean. Because the work that we do here together is the work of freeing our minds from the forces that create suffering, both for ourselves and in the world. It's freeing our minds from the forces of greed, of fear, of hatred, of ignorance, This is a rare event in the world. In one way, we could think of this particular men's retreat as the extension of something that communities of Buddhist monks have been doing for over 2,500 years, you know, coming together and practicing on this, on this path of awakening. But it's also a bit of an experiment, because at least in this Western culture, men generally don't gather to explore possibilities of genuine happiness, you know, and how to experience it. Generally, men don't come together to explore deeply and precisely and systematically the nature of this mind and body the nature of consciousness itself. So in that way, it's a bit of an experiment. You know, we don't have, for these few days, we don't particularly have a men's agenda. That wasn't, that wasn't really the purpose. Besides simply seeing and feeling what arises, you know, as we as a group of Dharma brothers 
come together and practice together. You know, we'll see what emerges from it. Just as I was thinking about it, I had a sense of a possibility that somehow out of our practice together there would be kind of this great sympathetic resonance of energies. You know, because it's rare. It's rare that it happens like this. And I could just feel this kind of... I, I forget what it's called. You know, when, when one wave comes... One wave hits another wave, hits another wave, and there's the amplitude grows. And there's probably some scientific word for that. Uh, but that's what I thought was a possibility here, that that there's a resonance of our energies that actually will lift us all and carry us all along. So we'll see whether that happens. I want to speak a little bit about the retreat, the meditation practice, what we'll be engaging in. The one quality of mind that for me has been the most supportive over all these years of practice, you know, 30, 40 years of doing this, there's one quality of mind that has really been the sustaining energy behind it all. And that's the quality of interest. It's that deep willingness, or even, we might even call it a passion, a passionate willingness to understand ourselves to understand our minds, our hearts, our bodies. There's a Japanese poet. Her name was Izumi. And she wrote, this is like 11th century or 12th century. She wrote, the moon at dawn, solitary, mid-sky. I knew myself completely, no part left out. And that really captures the spirit or the essence of meditation practice. It's to know ourselves completely, no part left out. It's that feeling and that intention that whatever it is that arises, and there'll be the whole range of experience, even over these few days, but there's that intention, whatever it is that arises, let me look at it, let me see. Let me understand it. When I first began my practice, I had been in the Peace Corps in Thailand when I finished college. This was back in the 60s. And then I went back to India to look for a teacher and started my practice and very similar to everyone else who starts a meditation journey, there were a lot of difficulties in the beginning. And initially, I would struggle with these difficulties, and I would judge myself for having them. You know, and I'm such a bad person, I'm such a bad meditator, and I would just create all of these stories. But at a certain point, this change happened in my understanding. And so I want to share with you the first night, so you don't spend five years in an unnecessary struggle, that the difficulties are part of the path. It's not that somehow we're not doing it right or we're bad or the difficulties are part of the path. And seeing 
and for myself this was really important, that I would rather see the difficult parts of my mind than not see them. Because if I had that interest in looking, seeing and understanding, then it all becomes workable and we actually learn something. If we have this reluctance to see the shadow side of our minds, then we're simply acting out all the patterns of conditioning. And there's no awareness, and there's no choice, there's no freedom. Sometimes the path of meditation practice, this path of understanding, of awakening to understanding, sometimes it's talked about in terms of really a great heroic effort. And that's one way of seeing it, because there are times when it does take that very strong commitment and passion and effort. But there's another way of viewing it also, which I think particularly for a group of men probably is worth emphasizing, and that is the understanding that in another way it's a path of surrender. It's not so much kind of forcing our way through something. It's a question of surrendering, of opening, of letting go. As we learn to surrender to this process, our own process of mind and body, just the experience moment after moment, we learn to surrender to it, to open to it, what happens is that we develop a very great sense of trust in the process. Sometimes, and as we give the instructions you know, over these, ne- these next days, there'll be instructions about slowing down, taking care, being mindful in each moment, avoiding interpersonal contact, you know, really staying in the silence. So sometimes when people hear that, especially new people new to the practice, they might take it as a kind of grimness. You know, it's kind of the zombie walk and looking down and no contact. It's important not to confuse mindfulness and grimness because they're two really different things. We can be very attentive and really careful in what we're doing, cultivating a strong awareness in the moment with a very light heart. One of our Burmese teachers said, work hard and have fun. And I think that's an important element uh, to bring to the practice. And certainly a sense of humor about our own minds is a helpful element to bring to the practice. Because as you will see, those of you who are experienced already know this, As one meditator once said, the mind has no pride. You know, it will do anything. It will create anything. And as we sit here and just observe it over these days, you will get a very intimate sense of this. So it's, it's helpful to hold it lightly, to have 
a sense of humor about what's happening, even as we have this passionate interest to understand. As we undertake the practice, it's important to keep reminding oneself that it's not about getting something. It's about letting go. So it's not about something you're going to get over these four days. It's really about what you're going to leave here in these four days. That is what will be the most freeing. So there are two supportive qualities that will help you in the practice. One is the quality of patience. The Buddha spoke a lot about patience being an essential aspect of this path because in the course of our meditation practice we will go through many, many cycles, ups and downs. Sometimes our minds are calm and concentrated and we feel very collected. Sometimes our minds are agitated, they're restless, they're bored, they're sleepy. We need patience just to stay with the ups and downs, to go through them all. I want to read something. This is from a, a writer named Dennis, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, Sela. He wrote, I have been hard at work now longer than I like to remember on a novel set in ancient Egypt. I found out how the pyramids were built, slowly. Almost anything can be done, it seems, if one proceeds slowly enough, but we moderns simply cannot grasp this. And that's so appropriate for meditation practice, because often we come from this culture that wants everything immediate, you know, wants to an enlightenment weekend. You know, we once got a letter addressed here to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> <laughs> it's not instant. This is a slow and gradual process of opening to ourselves, opening to our bodies, opening to our hearts, our minds. But what's so helpful to realize is that almost anything can be accomplished if we proceed slowly enough, patiently enough. So keep in mind that there will be the ups and downs. Sometimes you'll be experiencing really pleasant things. Sometimes it'll be unpleasant. Sometimes you'll be dealing with pain and learning how to relate to pain. It's all just a show. It's, it's like a dance of changing conditions. Don't be fooled or misled even when it feels like it's a huge thunder and lightning storm. You know, because sometimes that's what happens. Sometimes things get very intense. Maybe strong emotions are going to come up. There's no knowing. If one is patient and just practices the simple instructions of being mindful, being attentive, not pushing things away, not holding on to them, then it's all part of the passing show. We really develop a great strength and a great 
power and a great equanimity. So patience is one support. The other support for the practice is the feeling of loving-kindness. And we're going to be doing a loving-kindness meditation uh, each afternoon. In, in the Pali language, the word that we use for loving-kindness is metta. That's M-E-T-T-A. And it means friendliness. So we cultivate this sense of friendliness, of loving-kindness, of metta, to ourselves, to our own experience, and also to our fellow meditators. There's a line from a samurai poem. There was an anonymous, an anonymous samurai. And one of the lines in this poem was, I make my mind my friend. And I thought, that is a fantastic accomplishment. If nothing else happened over these few days, but you begin to make your mind your friend, that would be a tremendous thing. Because as you will see, we often are not that friendly with our minds, with our experience. So it's a practice. The most fundamental aspect of the Buddha's teachings is that all experiences, all situations, arise when the appropriate conditions are present. So everything comes out of causes. Everything comes out of appropriate conditions. And that all of these conditions are changing. So for now, you know, the conditions have come together for, for us all to be here. There's the resources, there's the time, there's the interest, there's the leisure. There's a lot of different things. There's the support of your friends, your family, whoever made it possible for you to come. A lot of conditions have come together for us to be here on this retreat. Can we see them really as a blessing in our lives and something that really is quite rare? There are not that many people in this world who have the opportunity to come together for an extended period of time simply to practice being aware, to practice waking up. This is its a rare set of circumstances. And so if we see it in that way, rather than simply take it for granted, it kind of awakens a certain fire of spiritual ardency within us. It's really out of this situation, this practice situation, that we come to a deeper understanding of ourselves and through that actually can contribute to some small extent 
to the understanding and the peace and happiness in the world. If we are simply acting out our own conditioned habits of greed and fear and anger and judgment, that's what we put out into the world. If we can begin to free our minds from those patterns, it actually opens the door to the possibilities of compassionate action in the world where we're addressing the suffering that is there. So even as we are proceeding just one moment to the next, and we'll be giving the meditation instructions in this regard, really paying attention just to this moment, and this moment, and this moment, with so much of the emphasis of being present, being wakeful, it's still helpful to hold, I think, the vision of the larger possibility of where we're going. You know, and whether you think of it in terms of going to greater freedom or greater happiness or greater peace or awakening or enlightenment, whatever word you like to use, seeing that we're on a path that actually leads there. I just want to close with a few lines from a book by René Domal. It's a book called Mount Analog. It was written quite a few years ago. And the book is really an allegory. It's, it's about a journey up a mountain. And the mountain represents the spiritual, the spiritual journey of understanding. So he wrote, keep your eye fixed on the path to the top, but don't forget to look right in front of you. The last step depends on the first. Don't think you're there just because you see the summit. Watch your footing. Be sure of the next step. But don't let that distract you from the highest goal, because the first step depends upon the last. No, it's our vision of what's possible that actually brings us here. So even as we pay attention to the step right under our feet, we don't lose sight of the vision. Because that really is the source of our energy and motivation. So I think it's going to be a fantastic few days with all the ups and downs. Um, And now Philip is going to say a few words. So I want to add my welcome to Joseph's. It has to be really in the. This is the uh, second men's retreat that I've taught, and 
I really enjoyed doing it the first time, and this is a larger group, and we're going to be using a different format, but a very rich experience in coming together without anything added. And I really feel as though we can do that in this retreat. As Joseph was saying, there's a tendency when we come on retreat to suddenly fall into some kind of expectation, to place some demand upon ourselves or some demand upon the practice or some demand upon time or the body or the the way the mind is supposed to behave. And it becomes a kind of uh, spiritual ambition if we're not careful. This is called Living in the World by Asha Vagasha. The Dharma of the Buddha does not require a person to go into homelessness or to resign from the world unless he or she feels called upon to do so. But the Dharma of the Buddha requires every person to free themselves from the illusion of self, to cleanse one's heart, to give up one's thirst for pleasure and lead a life of righteousness. And whatever people do, whether they remain in the world as artisans, merchants, or officers of the king, or retire from the world and devote themselves to a life of religious meditation, let them put their whole heart into their task. Let them be diligent and energetic. And if like the lotus flower, which grows out of muddy water, but remains untouched by the mud, they engage in life without cherishing envy or hatred, then surely joy, peace, and bliss will dwell in their minds. So it's not that we have to make an outer change. Any given one of you might choose to do that. That's not the requirement. The requirement, the call, the opportunity, the possibility is this inner change, this coming to some new relationship with yourself. So we come together as men in retreat. And we are retreating. We're retreating from daily life. We're retreating from our worldly concerns. And we're retreating from our ego needs. So a retreat is a kind of withdrawing. It is a time that we hope to gather oneself to be in a way that is not possible in daily life. So it's a retreat. In the battle of daily life, you know, we've beat a path out of there temporarily. Always with this notion that we're going to return. So there's this gathering in order to return. But it is a retreat. And therefore, by the very definition, the dictionary definition of retreat It is an act of humility. There's something we could not accomplish in daily life. So we have to retreat in order to do this. There there is a call for humility in that. We have to admit that we are not in control in such a way 
that we can accomplish all things in our daily life. This is not a failure, but it is a kind of defeat of ego. It's a kind of defeat of ego, because ego wants to be the all-conquering of all things at all times. And it ain't so. It just ain't so. And so the ego is surrendering its primacy to an experience of just showing up. And the mind, as you will discover, and those of you who've had lots of experience, and there are a number of you with lots of experience here, you already know this, the mind's going to rebel in many different ways, and the mind is endlessly clever. But at the same time, as, again, as Joseph made reference to, it is a kind of courageous act to be willing to just show up with whatever is arising in the mind, to not distract ourselves at all. That is very, very hard work. It's at times quite unpleasant. At other times it's boring. At other times it's frustrating. So it's no small thing to do this. It's also an act of surrendering what's comfortable and what we care about in terms of our... our, Right now we're giving up a weekend, just these next couple of days. So we're giving up something here. So again, there's a kind of courageous intent in doing that. And we're going to, as best we are able, as best we are able, we're going to surrender our ego demands over and over again. And we will be called upon to do it a thousand times in this retreat. So on the one hand, you have this humility that's implied in the retreat. And on the other hand, the courage that's in the retreat. And so we have to balance those two through our wisdom of mindfulness and the wisdom that comes from the compassionate heart. So it's both a a mind and a heart that's involved in this. On the one hand, to not feel special. All we're doing is sitting watching our mind. And on the other hand, is to to not uh, uh, disavow this incredible thing we're doing, to not uh, forsake, to not dismiss, take for granted the courageousness of doing this. The balancing of that, in part, involves not getting caught in expectation. The real humility and courage is in just staying present. When we stay present with compassion, it is an act of humility and an act of courage simultaneously. The opposites of those two are reconciled in the mindfulness and the compassion. I say this on the first evening in order for you to recognize all of the moments that you're actually reconciling those opposites. Just with your mind being however it is, not some new improved version of you. It's to be acknowledged. Now, in this process, inevitably, lots of challenges arise. So, for most of you, there's going to be body aches of mild to severe degree. For almost everyone, there's going to be uh, various uh, kinds of emotions arise, some of which are disturbing, 
and which one would rather just tune out rather than be with. There are going to be memories that come up, some that are very pleasant and actually evoke longing, and others that are quite difficult to be with. There's going to be worries that come up, and all the wants that haven't had their fair hearing are going to be clamoring, listen to me, fill me, this is what I want. All of this wide group committee that constitute your ego self, all these voices are going to be trying to get their, their time with you. And then there's going to be this uh, repetitive need for your retreat experience to be a certain way. So with all of these challenges coming up at, at once, we start a retreat by taking refuge. Refuge to take shelter, to take comfort, to have a kind of protection. To take refuge. And as has been done now for thousands of years, we have in this tradition a very specific kind of taking refuge. We take refuge in the Buddha, we take refuge in the Dharma, and we take refuge in the Sangha. Three times we take this refuge. We do so as part of the humility. We need refuge. At the same time, we do so as an act of courage because we declare that there is something greater than our own immediate ego. That is an act of courage. So we take refuge, we take refuge, we take refuge. In taking refuge in the Buddha, you can understand it as taking refuge in the historical Buddha, that there was this man 2,500 plus years ago who was just a human being like you, walking this earth in a society that had its own structures just as ours does, And he found a way to get outside the suffering that seems so inherent in the way human life is constituted. And human life has not changed in terms of its its real core constitution in 2,500 years. So he found a way out. And that's inspiring. He got all the way through. So maybe we can get all the way through, or certainly partially through, So you can take refuge in the historical Buddha. Or you can take refuge in the long line of enlightened ones. All of those who in all the different traditions have found a freedom. All the Buddhists that have found freedom. Or you can take refuge in your own Buddha nature. Each person here is already a Buddha, already has Buddha nature. It's that there's just this little dust in our eyes. The mirror of our minds are a little clouded. So for some, it's the historical Buddha that is most inspiring. For others, it's this whole line of those who have found freedom. And for still others, it's, oh yes, this capacity is inherent 
to me. It is my, my own heritage. Whichever of those brings life to you and your practice. And then the second refuge that we take is in the Dharma. And again, there's these threefold understanding of the Dharma. There is the Buddhist teachings, specifically teachings that are certain key teachings. Again, as Joseph was referring to around Anicca and Anatta, this, the world's always changing, and that there's nothing solid in the ego to hold on to, and that in trying there creates this kind of suffering. So it's, imagine it as big D Dharma, these real core teachings that are fundamental to proceeding down this particular path. And then there is the little d dharma, the truth of all things. So this bell, in its very nature, there is, there is a dharma, there is a truth to this bell. It has a, an essence, a suchness. Tathathata is the Pali word. And, and a, its own beingness that can be known. And we each experience all of these different things in our lives in that way, we're each capable of knowing the dharma of each moment, the little d dharma. And it's through the little d dharmas that we see this big dharma, the big truths, the big core understandings. And then the third way that one can take refuge in the dharma is taking refuge in your own knowing of the truth of how things are. The truth that this moment is like this, as my teacher Ajahn Sumedho says. This moment is like this. That's your truth. That's your dharma. That's your experience. So you may be sitting there and your knees hurting, your knees hurting, and your nose is itching, and you're sleepy and irritated and wishing you were watching the baseball game. And you can say to yourself, oh, this moment's like this. And suddenly... There's new possibilities in that moment because you've been willing to just be with the truth of it, just the dharma of that moment. So these three different ways of understanding taking refuge in the dharma. And then the third refuge, taking refuge in the sangha, also has this triple possibility of understanding. Sangha referring to community, to the historical community that has kept this tradition alive from the time of the Buddha's death. The Buddha did not appoint a successor at his death. The community came together and kept the tradition alive. And through all sorts of disagreements and schisms and all of these uh, uh, condemnations by other religions and all sorts of difficulties, the tradition has been kept alive and kept intact to a large degree. So there is this knowing you're part of some effort that started a long time ago and will go a long time in the future. And in this time, you are helping to keep it alive. So you're already part of the historical sangha just by being here. There's also the understanding of Sangha as all of the people all around the world that are sitting just as we are in these days. And there are tens of thousands of these people 
sitting. Sometimes in groups like this, sometimes just by themselves, sometimes being in caves, some are on month-long retreats, some are on three-year retreats, some are sitting in a cave with a boulder in front of that cave. All sorts all around the world are joined in this seeking, this witnessing, this saying, I wish to know, I wish to be free, I wish to be with things as they are without having to grasp them. It's really inspiring. Really, really inspiring. And your practice is just as magnificent as anyone else's. And anyone else's practice is just as magnificent as yours. Because it's only in each moment that it counts. Each moment. Showing up in that moment. And then the third understanding of Sangha is that we as a group of men have come together here in this particular year, this particular month, these particular days, at this particular location for all the reasons of these causes and conditions to create a community to support each other in each one individually in their own experience find their unique experience of Dharma and of Buddha nature. These traits are universal, and yet the experience of them are always known in the particular. It's again one of these paradoxes. Universal. They don't belong, they're not, they don't constitute a self, and yet they're always experienced in the personal. You can't Figure that out logically. There's a kind of being with it where your heart suddenly fills it and your mind just gets it. So we come together in sangha, in community, to support one another in this end. Each person here is sitting for you. And you are sitting for every person here. As you go through this retreat, you will find many a time when you take comfort and the concentration and the effort in the uh, obvious struggles of other people here. Those of you who are new, there's two things that are really going to surprise you. One is how delicious the silence is, because it is truly golden. It's truly noble silence. And the other thing that's going to surprise you is how wonderful it is to have these people doing this with you. So we formally take these three refuges as a kind of vow. You don't have to do this, but you're encouraged to do so. And I'm going to say it out loud and then have you do a response to it. And each time I will start uh, by hitting the bell and then I I will do the refuge. First the Buddha, I take refuge in the Buddha. And then you will say, I take refuge in the Buddha, if you so choose, out loud. And then there will be a moment, then I'll strike the bell again, then I take refuge in the Dharma.
and then and again a, a, a silence. Then I take refuge in the sangha, and then you respond, I take refuge in the sangha. So here we go. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the Sangha. So at the end of each sitting, you will hear the bell struck three times. You might remember Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Each time at the end of each retreat, of each sitting, I wish each of you a a, a very alive, full experience, and I'm most honored to get to share it with you. extend my welcome to everybody. Um, Every time I come to IMS and I've spent, you know, months on that side of the DS. The other day I was trying to to think of how many hours of meditation actually have occurred in this hall. It's become a hallowed hall. If any of you have ever been to certain battlefields, There's a certain feeling that you get. You stand there. There's something different about it. And in this building here, this room, uh, for the last 27, 28, we in 28? 28th year. um, And thousands and thousands of earnest hours put forth by so many people. And a lot of them gone now. Um, scuba diving is one of my passions. And I think about, um, you know, when I'm kind of gliding over the reef, there's this just beautiful life that's in blossom. It's absolutely, you know, 
phantasmagoric. But underneath that living thin layer of life are thousands of years of work by other organisms that have built that reef. And their skeletons, their exoskeletons are all there, supporting this fabulous life. So here we are, 2004. We're still around, but we're it. We're the outer edge. And this practice has been built for these thousand years, couple thousand years, and really even before. You know, who's to say when it all began? You know, when we walked upright, or was it before that when we looked at the stars and began to try to figure out our own minds and what this was all about? So here we are, this thin layer of life, doing our work together. And as Joseph and Philip uh, said, this is a pretty rare event to have men come together like this. I mean, I have a men's group that I'm in, kind of. It's a loosely formed... uh, um, I used to live in Boston. I live in Charlottesville, Virginia now. We have a group. It's called COBS, the Curse of the Bambino Society, for Red Sox fans who live everywhere. Um, And it's a great group, and we have fun, and we watch games, and we commiserate and whine and cry together about our Red Sox. But, uh, But this is very special. I love that group, but there's something that's not there that is here. We're so conditioned um, by our culture to push us in other ways. But I found over the years that despite my early conditioning and the expectations of culture, that there's something very beautiful and much more gratifying if I spend the time like we're spending the time uh, together. So I do wish you the, the best in these four days. And in a few moments, we're going to take the precepts together, the rules of training. And many of you are familiar with them. But for those that are new or that uh, are not familiar, I'll just spend a minute or two kind of uh, framing them in the context of our meditation practice. The Buddha's teachings can be summed up in many different ways, but they can be grouped into three trainings. There's the practice of sila, which is the Pali word for morality. Practice of samadhi which means concentration. And panya, which is wisdom element or the insight element. And in, especially in Asian countries, sila, this morality element, is generally spoken of first. That's where the energy is directed. And there's a good reason for this because it, it really provides the bedrock for the other two areas of training concentration, the wisdom element. And so when we, when we practice together here, there are five precepts that are uh, generally taken by lay people. And they are, um, and, they, and sets the groundwork for our work together. 
And they're pretty simple. That we refrain from taking life. That we refrain from taking from that we refrain from taking what is not given to us. That we refrain from sexual misconduct. That we refrain from false speech. And lastly, that we refrain from taking intoxicating substances that uh, cause heedlessness. Now, classically, these are stated in a, in a kind of in a negative tone. But they're really not. They're, very, they're really very positive. They're proact- proactive. And they're all under this umbrella of non-harming. If we were to contemplate any one of these, it's really... Uh, an aspect of non-harming of ourselves and of other people. And as we work within our practice and refine and develop these trainings, it requires much more than just abstention. We proactively make efforts to protect life, not just abstaining from killing it. So more than not taking what isn't offered, we honor and care for other people's belongings and property. And more than not engaging in sexual misconduct, we evaluate all our sexual behaviors as to whether these activities create harm or not. And more than not lying, we work on refining our speech so that our speech is, of course, truthful, but that it's also helpful. And that it's also offered in a timely fashion. And more than not taking mind-altering substances, we're sensitive to everything that we take in the body, how that affects our consciousness. Here on retreat, it's the amount of food we eat. We learn very quickly, we overeat, we're going to be in a kind of semi-coma for the next sitting or two. So, things are simple here. We take pains not to kill any creature. The fact that we have noble silence, which we haven't mentioned, eliminates all talking. And we will go into silence after, we'll have a short meditation tonight, we know you're all tired and We'll have a short meditation, but um, ostensibly we are in noble silence right now, which means that uh, any communication that you need to do um, should come in the form of a note through uh, the managers or notes to the teacher. Um, John probably talked about that in the orientation. Um, So, and celibacy... We're all celibate here this weekend. That eliminates any kind of uh, sexual misconduct. Uh, We're going to respect each other's belongings. Uh, We're going to refrain from alcohol and drugs, except for drugs we need as medicine. And this creates that supportive, quiet environment that helps concentrate, that that helps uh, cultivate these states of concentration and opens us to creativity and insight. 
Now you've all you've all heard the the term vicious cycle, and we've all experienced it. You know, we 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 create one unskillful act which which leads to another. Uh, we kind of lose it in a in a runaway spiral of of suffering. Situation deteriorates on us. Uh, wisdom escapes us. Um, we've all been in those vicious cycles. But when we come here to practice earnestly, we're entering a different kind of cycle. It's a virtuous cycle. And as we begin to clean up our behavior in the world, as our actions, our speech, our thoughts, incline more toward non-harming, our ability to settle down and concentrate naturally deepens. Somebody who's spending their days lying, cheating, stealing is just not a good candidate for meditation. Activities like that 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 are unskillful or harmful, they keep the mind stirred up. Concentration becomes really difficult and impossible in some situations. And that's from the actions in the world. So as we begin to clean up our actions in the world, this concentration, this mind, naturally falls into calmer spaces. Concentration deepens. And out of that deepening concentration arises the wisdom factors, creativity, kind of integration, insights. And from those developing insights and and further integrations, our behavior is then informed. So our actions, speech, and thoughts become more refined, brought into greater harmony, which in turn allows our mind to get even calmer, our states of concentration to get even deeper, which opens us to even more profound understandings, which then affect our subsequent behavior again, and they become more refined, which then allows concentration to deepen even more, on and on. So you get the picture. It's a beautiful cycle. So this is what we've entered into here. This is truly a virtuous cycle, this practice. And sometimes it's nice to kind of think about it, like when you think, well, what am I doing? Okay, I'm in this cycle. I'm investigating, refining my actions, my speech, my thoughts. It's helping me relax, get calmer. And out of that, you'll notice the, the, the kind of creative moments and integration that happens. So to set that stage, we'll take the precepts together and we'll solidify our foundation in, in launching this, this four days that we're going to spend together. And these days will be fun and productive. So... I'll call out the, the precept and just respond. I undertake the training to abstain from taking life. I 
I undertake the training to abstain from taking what is not given. I undertake the training to abstain from incelibacy. I undertake the training to abstain from false speech. I undertake the training to abstain from intoxicating drinks and drugs, causing heedlessness. Okay, so be it. We have set the foundation. We've taken the refuges. Um, I'd like you to stretch now for those who need to stand up or stretch your legs, and then we'll have a finish up with a short meditation. Just take a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.